Okay, the patron of this podcast is a wonderful and obviously very generous individual who goes by the name of Colin Green. Now, I met Colin just before the pandemic hit in a Cardiff pub, having not seen him for around three decades. Early on, I mentioned that I couldn't stay out too late as I had a meeting at the BBC the next morning, to which Colin responded, what, monkey tennis? And that's really appropriate, as by happy coincidence, all these months later, the first guest on the podcast is the man credited by Steve Coogan as having come up with that very line. Writer Peter Bainham is responsible for some of the funniest, most visceral and iconic comedy moments that have aired on our TV screens over the past 25 years. Apart from two series of I'm Alan Partridge, Peter's also been a main writer on The Day to Day, Jam and Brass Eye, and that's seen him working in close collaboration with the aforementioned Coogan, as well as comedy luminaries Armando Iannucci and Chris Morris. For the past 12 years or so, he's been living in LA, where he's co-written films such as Borat, Bruno and Arthur Christmas, and most recently, of course, Borat 2. I spoke to Pete before news about that top-secret sequel had spread, particularly to mere mortals like myself. I'm really keen to talk about some of the sliding doors moments in a life that has taken him from Cardiff to California, as well as discussing his new upcoming podcast series, Brain Cigar. In adhering to our let's relax with a beer or two theme, I'm in my back garden shed in Cardiff, starting out with a bottle of Timothy Taylor Landlord, whereas Pete, I'm surprised to find, is kicking back in the LA afternoon sun with the somewhat incongruous Orville Trappist Ale. Anyway, with technological difficulties having made a mockery of our intro spiel, let's cut through the preamble and early years in which Pete leaves school to spend six years in the Merchant Navy, yep, that cliched old route into the world of comedy writing, to find him trying to make his way as a writer in London in the early 1990s. Oh yeah, yeah, well I was, well like I said I had been in the Merchant Navy and uh, one of those write what you know things and I was doing weekending and I was scraping by you know, I th- I got on some, I got on some bursary type thing called the Peter Titheridge Award, which like paid me. It was like a thing they gave. They started with when I was there, which was like basically they would give you a a salary, and that was like amazing, amazing to get to get paid. And actually, I was temping. I was a fucking awful temp, like typing and just going and you know working in various offices and being just appalling and being shown the door, you know, uh, quite quite on a regular basis. And um, anyway, I was bumbling along, I was doing Weekending. You know, Weekending was a, a beloved show to a few people out there. Um, but, you know, as a, as a writer on it, you, gen- you genuinely felt like you didn't want to be a lifer. It wasn't a show you wanted to stay on forever. Um, you know, writing sat- satirical sketches about John Major walking a political tightrope. Like, the, <laughs> the kind of, a lot of it was the audio equivalent of those horrifyingly unfunny cartoons you see in broadsheet newspapers about, like, you know, um, trying to balance the budget while standing on a political tightrope. Like, duh, duh. And um, we took the piss out of it in the day-to-day years later with Brandt, the political cartoonist, you know. So I, I had quit weekending, and I had got commissioned to write a sitcom based on my days in the Merchant Navy, and I called it The Men of the Charlie, and it was some ship called the Charles, whatever. And... I spent forever working with a couple of really good, nice, good, good producers on it. And uh, I mean, I was in love with it, but it had a crazy cast. It had Brian Blessed as the captain, Anita Dobson as... A, I mean, it's weird. I mean, I, I, I'd love to say, I claim, I don't know if it's true, I, claim I was head of the curve in the, 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 the you know, the love of Brian Blessed. I mean, another bit was that thing of where he'd been this Shakespearean, what? 
and he'd been in Flash Gordon and Gordon's alive, you know, or whatever. And then I think he just got ironically rediscovered many times over after that. But I think I was, I don't know, I would, I would claim most, you know, I, I sound like I'm being one of those people claiming to have started the urban myth that Bob Hoskins played saxophone on Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street. Like, I, I liked... You know, I'm claiming I liked Brian Blessed ironically before anyone. But I but anyway, he was the captain of the ship who was insane and was obsessed with caravans. And so he's this bearded sort of like, oh, yes, my hearty's captain, but always like have caravan catalogues in his cabin saying, well, I, I really like the 16 foot Monza. It's got a skylight and, a, and it's got a gas stove here. And, I, and then and then Ethan Dobbs was his wife. I think John Sparks, in the first one, or the because I did two pilots, John Sparks was the kind of protagonist first mate who was trying to leave the, leave the Merchant Navy. John Pertwee was an insane engineer who lived down in the engine room and only talked to his tools, and in his head they talked back to him. Uh, and then he got... Sw- I think... I feel like we did one pilot... There was somebody else extraordinary in it as well, I can't remember. And we recorded one pilot, and Radio 4 came back and they said, yeah, very, yeah, interesting, yeah, whatever. And um, uh, and that was it. And then they said, but however, we're not quite sure. We got a couple of tweaks, and they gave me money to write and record a second pilot. But anyway, we uh, we did a second pilot. We switched out a couple of people. I think Brian Blessed was in it again. And Nita Dobson was in it again. I think we lost John Pert. We, we got somebody else. I feel like we got Chris Lynham, the, uh, the comedian who's notorious for an act in which he'd go on stage with a firework up his ass. And I think that's true. I don't think I dreamt that, but I think it might be true. Um, but, uh, you know, playing playing the same character of a mentally ill... Uh, engineer who lived in the engine room and talked to his tools and made the whole show and um, uh, and delivered it and I remember being in the radio light entertainment department one day and this this red faced drunk although there used to be lots of these red faced posh men who didn't seem to do anything who were in the middle management uh, you know they're probably all still there <laughs> I'm sure the BBC still got a few of them um, although all those management come, those consultancies probably came in and had them lined up against the wall and shot them, you know. Um, but anyway, this red-faced posh man comes up to me and says, "I heard your your men of the Charlie, this, your 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 sitcom, and um, well, there's no way that's not getting a series." And um, I thought, great, you know, yeah, yes, whatever. And and I get a call from Armando Anucci quite soon afterwards saying. Um, uh, listen, I'm Amanda Nucci. I've I've just come, you know, I've started working in radio light entertainment department, and, and I'm the script editor, which is kind of like the it's like the boss of the radio comedy uh, light entertainment department. Um, and he he was the boss of it, and he was also going to be producing uh, the next series of Weekending because uh, it used to like they do a series, they switch out producers all the time. He says I'm going to produce it, and the producer would bring you in and you know, a commission script or whatever. But I'd gone off to do my Merchant Navy sitcom, obviously. Cut a long story short, I say to him, you know, I'm doing this, you know, groundbreaking sitcom based, you know, based on a ship starring John Pertwee as a man who talks to tools and Brian Blessed as a, as a caravan-obsessed bearded captain who's married to, obviously, Anita Dobson. And, um... And, uh... And, and obviously, I won't be... No, I won't be coming back to 
to weekending to do your lame satirical weekly, you know, comedy comedy show. And so uh, all the best. Bye, Armando Nucci, whoever you are. You know, good luck. Promising Scottish producer. See ya. And, um, and anyway, obviously, cut to fucking Men of the Charlie doesn't get a series. And I'm £5,000 in debt, which is a lot of money in those days. And I was just washed up. And I, I, was, I cried. I do remember crying. And I remember putting on the radio at some point in the future, I can't remember, putting on the radio and hearing Armando Inucci's show um, on the hour and hearing it and hearing Chris Morris saying something about dismantled Pope phone hovering along road and just completely insane, amazing show and and felt like oh that's the co- that's the generation of comedians and comedy writers for the next ten years, you know. And it would if I felt like it, somebody would have felt hearing Python for the first time, or you know, if that's not too you know, I wasn't involved in it. And so, and I remember like just thinking, you fucking blew it. And obviously by this point, my merchant navy sitcom had got turned down. And I was just this washed up guy and I got and I went to a job agency and they said, right, you can start you start Monday in a call centre and this was it. And like there was no way back and I needed money desperately to pay my rent. And I turned down the chance to be in, you know, a possible I mean I don't know whether he would have anyway, I'm I'm fucked. And I remember on the Monday morning I'm due to start this call centre and I get a call from Friday Night with Wogan, the producer of Friday Night with Wogan, Friday Night with Wogan was going to be this new once-weekly recorded, as opposed to the old live Wogan show. It was going to be like a new recording. It was going to be Wogan's a bit edgy. And uh, and I think he was trying to do like a Jonathan Ross type thing. And, he, and, and I get a call from the producer. And basically, you know, a good Welsh connection. The producer tells me, you were recommended to us by Sean Ed William, who's an amazing, wonderful person who's saved my ass on several occasions and is my my guardian angel who's just rescued me i'm probably gonna start relying overly relying on terrible situations happening and then hoping well where the fuck is sean it <laughs> like i'm i'm being attacked by wild pit bulls in a park in la and i think sean it where are you you know but like she yeah she she basically saved me and basically recommended me for the job and i was i remember ringing up the job agency and saying i can't start at the call center because I'm going to go and work for Terry Wogan and them going, this is very unprofessional. Don't expect to offer you a job in a call centre again. <laughs> Rather being really angry. And I said, I'm, I'm so sorry. And, um, and getting this very soon. But anyway, I get the job on Friday night with Wogan and I go, arse duly saved. And okay, it's not, it's not on the hour. It's not, you know, it's, it, I'm not working with those people. But hey, I'm working in TV. And it's my first TV writing job, and it was really exciting. And I remember like being on, on set. A slight a jump to this, for the listeners' information. I just um, after half of a bottle of Orval Trappist Ale, accidentally. So I had to make sure I'm re- yes, it's recording. It's recording. Um, I accidentally failed to record a solid forty-five minutes of stuff um, with Francis. And um, anyway, um, where was I? It's okay. It's okay. No, you're, you're on Friday night with Wogan. Go for it. Go for it. It's oh fine. yeah, yeah. During one of, during Friday night with Wogan, which was like a once weekly recorded show, I was one of three people, three writers, whose job was entirely to write Terry's links to guests. 
his pun-laden link, links to guests. And one week we had Christopher Reeve on the show uh, prior to his, his very tragic accident. And Christopher Reeve, Christopher Reeve's people sent a message through going, we've seen what Terry does and we're big fans, but no puns. And no, no puns and no references to Superman because Christopher's trying to follow a different path now. And then we put together, you know, an intro that's like literally faster than a speeding ticket. It's the man of, st- you know, like it was just these things. And it's all these like ridiculous things. I think this guy's going to be Superman. You know, you know. I think so, that somebody, somebody came, wasn't me. Okay, one of the other writers came up with the, I hope he's not going to be crap tonight. Come on. Crap tonight, kryptonite, you know. <laughs> God. I hope he's not going to be crap tonight. Anyway, cut to like about an hour before the show and, and somebody comes to us, one of the, one of the um, PAs comes to us and says, Mr. Reeve wants to talk to one of the writers, you know, now. And I was like, yeah, I'll go and meet, I'll go and meet him. And I'm going to meet Christopher Reeve, and I'd never met any famous people. And I, and I go, apart from the cast of Weekending, you know, I go to his dressing room, and he's sitting there, and he's furious. He got hold of the script of the link of this, and he just basically read me the right act, fair enough. Because he'd been, and it, it was all like, he'd done, he'd done, he'd like, well, I've been in your West End. I've, I've been in, you know, I've, and it was all like he'd been, you know. And I was like, and all I could think was, it's Superman, you know. And I tell this with massive respect to him. The, God rest his soul, and he had a very... And I just remember thinking, all I could think was, I'm being bollocked by Superman. This is so cool, you know. <laughs> and um, I hope he, you know, obviously, hope he doesn't punch me and I go flying through a wall, you know. Oh, my God. Do you, do you remember, did, did those lines uh, stay in then? Did, did they run with those? No, I, I, I don't... I can't remember. I, can't, I remember the bollocking... Um, and I remember a review, and all God rest Terry's soul as well. But I remember, um, I remember the reviews. Just, just it, it was. It was because he, the reviewers, try figured out what he was trying to do. It was like basically letting your, letting your uncle, <laughs> fill in for Jonathan Ross one week, and and so anyway, about six months into that, into six months into this job, I don't do the call center. I do Friday night with Wogan, and then I do get a call from Armando Iannucci. Who says, would you come along? We're, we're going to do a, we're going to do a, a, a TV version of On the Hour. And are you interested? And I went, yes. And I just couldn't believe that. I thought I, I thought I'd absolutely fucking blown it. And then I get, and I found out, I found out also since that like Chris Morris didn't want any, any um, new writers on it. Like, and wasn't, wasn't interested. And I managed to pitch a joke about. Uh, an infestation of horses in the on the London Underground, and he liked that, and so I, you know, and that was history. Well, for me, that was history. Um, but I got I got the job, and um, you know that way around. And Armando and I remember asking Armando like, what you know? I turned. I think I must have said to him like, I turned you down, and um, uh, and we talked earlier <laughs> in the unrecorded version of this interview. You know, it's, it's a special, the bootleg unrecorded version that we'll just have to tell people down the pub. You know, uh, as, as, a, as I was explaining to you, you know, in, in song, no, I wasn't, um, was that, um, uh, I can't, what was I telling you? I can't remember. This is half an oval. Fucking, this is... Well, it's strong stuff, but you did insist. Anyway, you were talking about, um, you were talking to Armando Iannucci, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so I, he says to me, he, I said to him, like, you know, I turned you down for this 
for that. And, you know, I, was, I thought you'd just be offended and he just didn't give it. You know, people generally, if they want you for a job, they don't take offence. Um, but he told me two things. One was that Men of the Charlie, my Merchant Navy sitcom, my groundbreaking Merchant Navy sitcom, he thought he was absolutely fucking bizarre and not in a good way. And if you've seen the day to day or on the hour, he's a fan of the surreal, um, but just thought it was awful <laughs> and just weird and no. And that's, you know, that, that was more endangering to my career as a writer than me turning him down to, to go and go and write it. Um, but, uh, but also he said that I said, well, what, what drew you to me? If you don't mind me asking, I probably asked him this a year later or something like that in the thick of production. And he said, oh, yeah, he says, do you remember one Sunday we were both in the Radio Light Entertainment Department? And I thought, oh, my God, yeah. And I remember, like, being low on cash and probably in the middle of doing my second pilot of the insane Brian Blessed sitcom, you know, the Brian Blessed into caravans on a ship sitcom. Cliché, oh, no, it's another one of those sitcoms that has John Pertwee in an engine room talking to spanners, you know. And um, uh, anyway... He said, yeah, and I remember, like, oh, yeah, and I had been in the Radio Light Entertainment Department stealing photocopier paper, sneaking in on a Sunday because I was low, I was penniless, and he'd been in there doing some production stuff. Uh, and I remember we were in there, and I happened to chat to him in the photocopier room, and somehow we'd, the small talk had gone from, had gone from small talk to us making up unbelievably, unbroadcastably offensive songs uh, in the style of Frank Sinatra, mostly celebrating necrophilia. As you do. As you do. So, yeah, that's what got in the job. That's what, that's what got me in, you know. And, like, it was one of those absolute sliding doors moments of, you know, um, I've had a bunch of those. You asked me about sliding doors. There were others, aren't there? Well, yeah, I was going to ask about uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, another one of those kind of sliding doors things where it might not have happened. But let, let's do it in chronological order if we can, yeah? So we've got to get through Fist of Fun, Partridge, Brass Eye... Uh, all that stuff before we get to, to that. So just wanted to ask you something. That is that lots of us, uh, you know, grew up watching Python, not the nine o'clock news, the young ones, Blackadder, all, all, that, all that great stuff. And, and not to mention the sort of like the Dick Emery and the the Porridge and Two Ronnies and, and other stuff that people sort of around our age grew up watching. And they, they went to school the next day and, and quoted all those lines and playgrounds reverberated to the, you know, the sounds of these these lines being repeated by teenager, you know, adolescent kids and so forth. But, you know, when it comes to things like monkey tennis and, and all that, you know, and, and realising that kids will have done the same with the material that you've written. Um, if I was responsible for that, I'd never stop going on about it. So are you are you very much uh, aware of, of that sort of legacy, if you like? And and, uh, and are, you, are you proud of that? Something you, you take with you? It's great because, like, for example, earlier on, my daughter, my seven-year-old Neris, um... She had these snails in a little terrarium thing that she'd kept. And the snails escaped and they were gone. And she was sobbing. She was heartbroken. She was heartbroken. And I said, I know, but on the other hand, I came up with monkey tennis. I'm joking. I didn't. <laughs> I was like... Right, okay. I thought you were serious then. I wonder where you're going with that. Thank you. Right, good. You know, what, what's it like really? No, to answer your question in a... In a in, answer your question in a... In a normal way. Like, no, it's it's lovely. It's really nice. It's it's weird because you just come up with this shit in a room and, you know, um, and uh, and sometimes I very occasionally hear somebody else 
say they... I, I remember one weird one. I think it was during very pre-Donald Trump. It was like a previous election campaign. It might have been the George Bush election, election campaign. And it was when the, the Republicans were all about the Tea Party and, and like, you know, homophobic Christians. I mean, that stage, that's a constant, isn't it? But I remember that the Republicans had this thing about... Um, they had a slogan. I think it even was a bumper sticker. And it said, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, as a kind of a homophobic thing. And we had that. And I came up with that in the second series of I'm Alan Partridge. And I remember like going in a terrible egotistical way, going back and trying to figure out if that came before. The, and I thought, did a Republican see I'm Alan Partridge and see that? Or did it, and then, but on the other hand, sometimes people do just independently come up with these things. You know, you think, all right, that's not that difficult to... Whatever, but yeah, I remember. I remember like back of the net as well. Like even though I didn't, back of the net was presumably did exist as a phrase, but we had that in Partridge and as a as a kind of victorious statement between people joshing back of the net. That was Partridge, and so I feel like yeah, yeah, I feel yeah, yeah. It's it's nice that yeah, it's really nice. Another bit of trivia, a great bit of trivia is that when Partridge first did on the hour, and then when they did it on the day to day, and I wasn't part of this decision, but um, and this is a to me, a fucking stroke of genius, is that Steve doesn't know anything about... I don't know anything about sport, and Steve doesn't either, really. And um, But they thought it wouldn't be funny to have a... You know, one of the original... And there's different versions of it. I wasn't in the room when this was thought up, but basically, the theory of Partridge, I think, originally, apart from him on the hour, on the hour being slightly obsessed with groin strains, was to have a a sports reporter who didn't really know much about sport. And so... And, like, this is kind of... This kind of stuff is kind of really ahead of its time, I think, in terms of comedy thinking. And, like, a lot of this stuff happens now. Was that they got... I think Armando or somebody got Steve. Um, and I, I feel... As I say this, I feel like Leon Herring or Stuart Lee or Richard Herring are going to call me out on this and say, no, that's not what happened, whatever. But I don't, I don't know. This is my reading of what happened was that, that, that somebody had the idea to put Steve Coogan... And say, do this character, do this Alan Partridge sports presenter character and commentate on this clip. And we're going to play you a clip of a sport, you know, a goal, somebody scoring a goal or somebody playing golf and just respond to what you're seeing. But as a sports presenter. And so that's just brilliant. And so it's semi-improvised. So stuff like eat my goal or, you know, that stuff is said on the fly. And like, obviously, you know, he, he's very aware and he's like doing a comedic things so that's where you end up with things like um you know there's one i think it's on the day-to-day where like a guy scores a goal foot a guy a footballer scores a goal you know he scored a goal and then he kicks the ball in again he said and another one and like just that whole like lack of knowledge of like no the guy's just doing the second one for a bit of fun you know yeah or the golf thing where like you know there he is holds the long it's a golf and he goes he holds the long bat thing and Brings it down. He's hit it. He's hit the ball. Like, it's just... Even though Steve knows that's a joke, I think the less you know about sport, the more able somebody like that is able. Because they, they, I remember, like, with... You know, I can't remember if I said this on <laughs> the previous um, take or this one. But, like, I remember hearing Steve saying on, on the hour, on that fateful broadcast of On the Hour I heard when I thought, great, I fucked it and I'm not going to be part of this group of people... I remember hearing him say something like a guy who ran, and tell me if I have said this already, but a guy say, you know, a guy who ran a very dodgy old people's home where they would shoot people. They would, if any of the 
Have I said this already in this one? Or is it, I think you saw the previous one, was it? It was the previous one, but don't worry about it. If, if this one's better, I'll delete the other one. Uh, and vice versa. That's the one we lost, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. We should keep all this, by the way. Keep, keep that. So anyway, it's basically this guy, this very dodgy guy who is a horrible guy. Who ran a, was very, probably topical now with all the care homes and the COVID and the, the scandal of care homes. But basically, a guy who ran a dodgy care home where they just mistreated the old people. And basically, he had snipers on the perimeter of the care home in case the old people tried to leave the property, you know. And they're just snipers. And so he says, and he's being questioned by this reporter who's saying, this is outrageous, you know. And he says, no, I want to assure the public that, um, we, yes, we do have guns, but these guns are very, very accurate. Like, that's a defence. And it was a... I don't remember him saying something like, he gets really annoyed with the person interviewing him. He says, you, you, you come here in your glasses and your shirt... And you accuse me of, like... And it was, like, this thing that... And I think, like, there's a lot of people ever since, like, Ricky Gervais and, and who've taken that style of... And, you know, have really run with it and just brilliant. And influence the next generation, so it's not a criticism. But, like, I think that show and that's... I heard stuff on that show that I thought it was, like, a different type of comedy. It was, like, it wasn't going for the set-up gag, set-up gag. I, I can tell you one thing. So I remember Steve Coogan telling me that... When the day-to-day first ever came out, that he sat, he got really excited, he loved it. But he goes up and he sees a bunch of friends in Manchester, including influential comedy voices, you know. And um, he sits and he puts on the day-to-day for a bunch of friends up in Manchester. Uh, and, he, and he goes, you're going to fucking love this. This is going to change the world, you know. And he puts it on and he sits there with like people who are like very respected. And he plays the whole thing. Nobody laughs. And one of them just goes, well, that was a bunch of fucking shite. <laughs> oh, no. Wow. Like, oh, there's good. no jokes. I remember, like, people... I remember at the time, like, Jez, your, your cousin and my best friend, I think it was when he was working on Never Mind the Buzzcocks that there were various writers on that who used to say, yeah, like, it's not proper joke. But day-to-day, they'd say... People who'd write on, like, you know, have I got news for you? You know, and this like, good, brilliant top gag writers who would just also go, it's not proper jokes. You know, it's not jokes. There's no, you know. But I remember hearing it and going, this is, I love this. I fucking love this. You know, anyway. And on that bombshell, on that bombshell. Wow, on that bombshell indeed. I thought it had done really, really well. I know it was popular with a lot of people I knew. And so, you know, people had the the videos as it was in those days. And uh, I had them too. Um, I thought that was a massive success, ratings-wise, but obviously not. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, I mean, I remember, to be honest, the the show came out. I go onto the day-to-day and I go, oh my God, this is like, I love it, so excited by it, and this is going to rock the world. And it gets a bunch of fantastic reviews. And then, honestly, the day after, sh- I don't, you know, you build up to that, and the day after it goes out, fuck it, it tumbleweeds. Like, nobody's seen it. Like, they, I found out, like, it was a very, very, you know, like, the, it was the kind of viewing figures that, and I, I bet now, BBC would go, what? One and a half million? But it was like, it would just go, you know, and, and nobody... I remember it being a massive anticlimax. Probably the whole series, actually, it was being... Because, like... And actually, it wasn't tumbleweeds, because, like, people out there... Quite often, people who were kids, you know, <laughs> you know, were just seeing it, like, 10-year-olds, 12 years The same, you know, I'm arrogantly comparing myself, but it would have been, like, me seeing, I guess, the goodies or Python or something like that, and you go, you know... 
arrogantly comparing us with Python. But but people now have said to me like, oh god, I saw that show and it was like it was lovely. It was a bit after the fact, but lovely. Ten years later, people would say, oh god, when I saw that show, I was twelve. And I think even then, I I remember speaking to people who'd say, yeah, I'd go in and I'd tell my friends about it, and they wouldn't give a shit. That's the thing with any of these shows. Yeah, any of these shows like. It's like three people in it. It's cool because three of you like it. The nerds like it, you know. Wow, I'm surprised. I, I don't know whether you're doing it down a little bit there, but I know a fair few people who hold it up, you know, myself included, as absolute landmark series, you know. Okay. Anyway, I just want to take you off on a, a tangent for a bit. You're, you're, you're out in LA, I'm married to an American, and you've got two American daughters. I was wondering, do you, do you still feel... Just as a quick aside, do you still feel very much connected to the motherland? And uh, do, you, do you share that? With your, with your kids, you know, do, do you tell them all about it? Oh, yeah, I never, I never shut up about it. It's kind of annoying to them, you know. Um, yeah, 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 I, I talk about, talk about Welshness all the time. And my, my girls are very close with my family in Cardiff. Weirdly, we've had more contact during, the, I don't know, this is probably happening a lot. We've had more contact and connection with my family in Wales uh, during this time than, than in previous, I mean, we were back in, the UK for a year and a half. And we saw them a lot then, but now, yeah, we've had like we had a quiz the other week. We had a we had a trivia quiz with my with my family down in Cardiff. That was great fun, you know. Yeah, I, I had an aunt that lived out in Orange County, I think it was, and uh, and um, that's out in LA, I think. And, and she used to go to, to chapel on on a Sunday with other Welsh chapel goers. So, is there any kind of Welsh community out there that you're aware of, or what? Uh, not, not, not noticeably. No, um, there's a British community in Santa Monica. Apparently, or English possibly, but there's a. It's, apparently, Santa Monica has got like the biggest British, you know, enclave outside of Britain. You know, which this and um, uh, but apart from Patagonia, which isn't really <laughs> South America, you know, I don't think there's a huge amount. You do, well, the weird thing is, you do see there's a lot of Welsh names in American. But there's not a lot of the around the country. I've seen quite a, around my in my travels around America. You see the words Bryn Mawr, or they say Bryn Mawr. That you see that all over the place, like like as a road. You see Bryn Mawr Avenue, you know, and that's that's it, you know. So, but the Welsh don't really. I don't feel like the Welsh can export ourselves. Maybe because people are happy, but they, you know. They don't sport ourselves the way that the the Irish and the Scottish do. So it's not like you know the Irish are kind of everywhere, aren't they? And I mean, I think that was probably to do with the famines and whatever like that. You know that during the certain eighteenth and nineteenth century, there were like big movements of Irish people abroad. Oh God, I did go to a um, a Welsh festival in LA about five years ago. Sarah, my wife, read about it. She said, Did you do that? I was like, "Oh my God, we're going to that." You know. Oh, by the way. You won't be able to see this, but um, yes, yeah, um, yeah, a small Welsh teddy bear, yeah, 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 which um, my wife, my wife calls, my wife calls this Simru, the bear, you know, and that's like obviously, I find that racially insensitive, cultural appropriation on a on a grand scale. But there was this Welsh festival in LA in this park, and I was very excited to go to it. We took the girls along to it. Like, this is your cultural heritage, girls. We're going to the Welsh festival, and I went there, and I'm, and it was like a, it was like a mini. It had a map, right, like a Glastonbury type map with the main stage, right. But the main stage was literally like your fucking patio. It was like the thing, and there was a band playing on it, playing slightly sub chieftains, and you remember that ad for like. 
fruit licorice all sorts or something like that and it went no no fruit and it went there's um there's juice no there's fruit juice and it was this juice loose about this who's you know that or a moose it was stuff like it was like just this i was apart from me the only remotely welsh people were my daughters and there was nobody else at this festival that was even remotely welsh and they were selling completely random things that they thought might be Welsh. i don't know who'd had the idea for it and like and I said to one of the band, I said, are you Welsh? Are you got a Welsh connection? And the guy said, uh, no, I think one of my uncles might be half Scottish. And it was like, but it was, I was very flattered that they had a Welsh festival, but there was nothing. But I did get, I did buy. And when we, actually, this is when I found out we'd been cut off the last time. I did buy a book and it was a 1970s. I wish I could find this. I will find this and I will scan copies. I will scan it and you. I found... A 1970s English to Welsh and Welsh to English phrase book, right? From the 1970s, or maybe even from the 60s. And it's amazing. It's so... It's things like... You know what I mean? Like phrase book. You know what phrase, the funny thing the phrase books is like, what are the circumstances in which I'm going to need this phrase? You know? And one of them was like... It, it was very... It was very me too. It was things like the Welsh for... I see that the barmaid has an excellent chest... You know, it was stuff, and it was just amazing. Or would you like to come back to my house? It was cre- it was shockingly of its time. Like, and but also like phrases for if you stay in a Welsh bed and breakfast, and saying I can assure you we are married. You know, which is obviously what you would say to some Welsh landlady in nineteen seventy one. It was great. That's fantastic. Wow. Well, it's well. I say it's fantastic. It's not really, is it? Maybe don't uh, don't, don't publicise it. Really, it doesn't make us look that good. Um, certainly not in the current climate. Anyway, right. Anyway, look, we've been at this for for quite a few hours now. Most of it sort of disappeared, but but never mind. Maybe we'll carry on um, and do the other half or the other part another time. You've just got time then to tell us about your podcast. So tell us about your podcast. What's it all about? All right. So. I, uh, yeah, so the podcast, the podcast is, uh, it's called Brain Cigar, um, for no decent reason, and it's me and my best friend, Jeremy Simmons, uh, um, who's the funniest person uh, I know on the planet, and um, I know there's a lot of podcasts out there with, with, with people talking about, hey, do you remember this show, and, uh, or, hey, let's talk about this album, you know, pop, you know, pop culture chat, I know there's a lot of that stuff out there, you know. Um, but I think the world could do another more. So, like, for example, in the pilot, we talk about, uh, you know, things, stuff that... I know everyone talks about it, but, like, Bowie dinners, you know, when David Bowie did that, you know, the, the microwavable frozen meals back in the 1970s, you know, there's kind of, you know, when he, you know, when he, he was in the adverts and, and uh, you know, it's just, just stuff like that. You know, we, I, you know, we just basically talk about, like, oh, you know, maybe, like, you know, you remember the time that Colonel Gaddafi was on TFI Friday? You know, it was a really fucking offensive. Like it was, it was the height of his. He was just killing so many people in his country, and 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 it was just disgusting. He ends up on TFI Friday, and all those people, like you know, the the, the, the posse, you know, Chris Evans's posse, all laughing about like, hey, look what we've got on the show. It's Gaddafi, you know, and so it's stuff like that. We just talk. It's another one of those shows. I'm afraid talking about stuff that we remember. I know. I I feel very. I feel a bit embarrassed and self conscious that like. Other podcasts will have done this. There'll be, you know, whatever. We just, we've got our own take on this stuff. For example, we go, we, you know, we, we, we talk about, you remember the offshoots of um, Thomas the Tank Engine? And it was, uh, uh, it was basically um, the anatomy of Thomas the Tank Engine. And they were these, 
fascinating biological cross-sections of Thomas the Tank Engine showing the muscle and the brain stem and, you know, the liver, you know, all the different parts of Thomas's anatomy. It would show, would show where the food went in, where the coal would normally go into a, a train, into a steam engine. It was like that where they would feed his kind of, this meal, this kind of bone meal, they put it in there. And then there's another cross-section where they'd show the small intestine and they would show Thomas's anus where he would defecate from, you know. It's, so it's that kind of thing, you know, that... Yeah, yes, another another pop cultural podcast talking about Thomas the Tank Engine's rectum. That sort of thing. But I, you know, I hope people tune in. And I hope people. I think we've got a new take on stuff like that. You know, I think we can. You know, we've got new, something new to bring to the table. You know, that's another one of those. Yeah, yet another one of those shows. Yeah. Right. Okay. Thanks a lot, Pete. Um, as I said, like all my guests, yeah, you, you've got better stuff to do. So um, thank you very much, and we'll catch up again. Good luck with the podcast and we'll let people know when that's on its way. And uh, thanks again. And we'll do another one. We'll do more if you need to do more. Cheers, mate. Bye. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that. A big thanks again to Peter Bainham there who was talking to me, Francis Jones, on the Last But One podcast.